Matthew chapter 5. Let me read these words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount from verse 38 down to verse 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. May he add an aid in our understanding. Let's go to the Lord and ask him for help in that this morning. Father, we come to you prepared to do something, to receive something supernatural, something that we need your help with. We are going to look at your word And we know that it has the power to change hearts and lives. It alone has the power to change hearts and lives. Your spirit uses your words to create your people. And human words have no ability to do that. So we need your your spirit to work in our hearts, to open eyes, to open ears, to challenge, to convict, to instruct. Would you encourage us in the next few moments with who you are, confront us with who we are and who we're not, and show us how you have provided a way for us to have a right relationship through the person of Jesus Christ. Encourage us in this, we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're looking at the next four verses of the Sermon on the Mount, and as we jump into this, I'd kind of like to again set the context and just remind us, what is Jesus doing in this passage of Scripture as we've been walking through it and studying it? Jesus has come and he's got a group of followers. His, his disciples are listening, but there's also, he's kind of confronting and speaking into the culture. He's helping people see how the scribes and Pharisees, who everyone thought was the most righteous, everyone thought that if you were a Jesus person, if, excuse me, if you were a God person, if you were one of God's people, what did it look like to follow God? Surely the scribes and Pharisees of anyone would have had that figured out. They were the best of the best. They had the best kind of righteousness. They followed all the rules. They checked all the boxes, surely you had to be like them if you wanted to be close to God and one of God's people. And yet, in the context of this sermon, if you look back in verse 20, Jesus makes this very shocking statement. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, listen, what it takes to be a follower of God, you've got to be even better. You have to be more righteous. You have to be, there's a different level of righteousness. Even the scribes and the Pharisees don't measure up. And then he goes on with six statements, and he starts with anger, and then he looks at lust, and then he looks at marriage. Last week, Pastor Kevin walked you through our words, oaths, lying, truthfulness. In each one of these areas, he's saying, look, here's how the scribes and the Pharisees interpreted or misinterpreted or misapplied the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus is saying, if you had really understood what it meant to follow God and to have that kind of righteousness, here's how you would have properly applied the Old Testament law. Jesus is saying this is how it's not enough that you haven't committed murder. If you just simply get angry with someone, you've broken and violated the spirit of the law and you need a different kind of righteousness. He's going to conclude this section by saying you therefore must be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, I think we kind of understand there's this obvious sense, there's something different about the four verses that I just read on retaliation. You might have some kind of a heading in your Bible on retaliation or something related to that. There's something that we understand in, there's something different in this section compared to the others. 
If you look at anger, if you look at lust, if you look at divorce, if you look at oaths or lying or truthfulness, there's something very easy in those actions where we recognize quickly, well, that's, that's sin. I can recognize that. Those kinds of actions are wrong actions. And now Jesus shifts and he gets even a little more subtle. He, he peels back the layers of the heart just a, just a little bit more. And he's saying it's not enough just that you don't sin. We could all acknowledge we shouldn't lie. We shouldn't, we, we shouldn't lust. We shouldn't get to the point where there's this unbridled anger with others. Th- these are sinful actions that we shouldn't commit. Now Jesus goes even one step further and he says, not just, not just, that, you, not just that God people don't sin, but that God people react in the right way when they are sinned against. He's moving from action to reaction. I listened to Sinclair Ferguson preach on this this week, and he said that you can tell a lot more about someone by their reactions than by their actions. And this is where Jesus is going. He's peeling back the layers just a little bit more, and he says, listen, people that truly understand what it means to be a part of God's people, to be a part of Christ's kingdom, well, even their reactions... When they're sinned against, they respond in such a way that it's righteous and holy and pure, and, and, and therefore they're not responding in the wrong way. So that kind of raises a question, right? There's this tension, if we're honest. So is there ever a time? It's very easy for us to know that Christians are supposed to act like Christians. That's what Jesus has been saying. He, he's taught, he walked through with anger, with lust, with divorce, with oaths and truthfulness and lying. Christians are supposed to act like Christians. Is there ever a time where Christians don't have to act like Christians? Is there ever a time we get a free pass? Can someone be so wrong to us when someone sins against us? Isn't there just like a get-out-of-jail-free card where for one moment we get to respond in ways that the sinful flesh cries out? Don't, don't we have that privilege and right to react wrongly? So last night, we're getting ready for dinner. And uh, kids are cleaning up, and there's something. There, there, one, of, one of the children had lost a new toy. I don't think they had lost it. It had been misplaced. One of the siblings took and misplaced a new toy, and parts were missing. And if you can imagine that scenario, there, there was emotion involved. There was heightened tension, you know, that this new toy was lost due to the fault of a sibling. And my wife was trying to give instruction, like, look, this is a better way. Before you go and overreact, let's respond this way. Here's how we can find it, right? And so she says, don't, don't you think this is how you should react? Before you go and overreact, immediately the response, I have a right to overreact, right? And, and, and because the sibling had, had, had responded so poorly, don't, doesn't that all well up inside of us, right? When we're sinned against, when our new toy is taken, well, for one second, don't I have to not act like a Christian? Don't I have a free pass to respond in ways that even though we know God wouldn't approve of? Well, here Jesus is going to say, that when we really understand what it's like to follow him, when he truly rules our hearts, we'll, we'll know, even in those circumstances, in those scenarios, we don't have a right to act as if we're not Christians. How do, how do Christians respond when they're sinned against, when they're insulted, when their possessions are taken, when their rights are infringed upon? How do Christians use their money, even that that they have a rightful use to? Jesus is going to walk through it and illustrate it and help us understand how it is that we as Christians are supposed to respond. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5, and in verse 38, here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What is Jesus saying here when he goes back and he quotes what they would have heard? He quotes from the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was something they were familiar with. It was common in their understanding. What is Jesus saying here? At this point, some of these verses and some of Jesus' instructions here have been badly misapplied by us in our day. Not Not only were the scribes and the Pharisees misapplying and misinterpreting the Old Testament, for us in our day, sometimes we can miss the context of what Jesus is saying. And, 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 and some will use this to uh, ascribe to say that, well, Christians are supposed to be pacifists. Jesus was, was, uh, it, Jesus was prohibiting the use of any force at any time. Jesus was saying that Christians are supposed to essentially be doormats, uh, allow anyone to do anything to them. I don't think that's what Jesus was intending for us to walk away with. So what was he trying to help us understand? What was Jesus instructing us with? We need to go back and understand what was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, th- this was a common, well-known phrase, the lex talionis. Everyone would have understood that as the law of retaliation. The lex talionis law, retaliation, people would have understood this is, was, you could go to the Old Testament. In fact, I've got a few verses on the screen for you in the book of Exodus. And here's what Exodus says. This is actually listed out both in Exodus. You would find it again in Leviticus 24, in Deuteronomy 19. And there were certain laws and instructions. If you think of Exodus chapter 20 as the moral law, the Ten Commandments, well, then in some of the following chapters, 21, 22, 23, there's, there's some of the civil applications of that law and principles and judgments. And in Exodus chapter 21, the, the instance is given here. Um, if you come back to verse 21, which I don't have on the screen, it says, if two men are striving, if they're fighting, and certain things happen. So when two people are striving together, verse 22, and then you go to 23, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's Exodus 21, 22. 25. So here was the law. It was written down in several places in Leviticus and Deuteronomy as well. There were certain judgments. The, the reason God gave this law was limitations on the courts. It was limitations on the judges that when crimes were committed, when there was offense between two people, th- these were the limits of retaliation. It, it, it was something given so that uh, the punishment had to fit the crime. That's a well-known phrase in saying that, that if someone had a minor offense committed to them, you couldn't exact life. You couldn't exact a punishment greater than the crime. So it was, it was given to restrict justice, and it was also given in the realm of the courts. This was for judges, so that judges had a way to guide punishments. It was never intended for personal behavior. It was not given to individuals so that if someone hurt your eye, you now have the right to go and hurt their eye. And yet in Jesus' day, that is precisely what was taking place. The scribes and the Pharisees were taking a law that was given to the realm of the, to the, le- to the legal realm for the judges to hand down punishments, and they were using it as personal vindication. See, you hurt me, I hurt you back. You knock out my tooth, I hurt you tooth. And so uh, they were taking this and bringing it into the realm of personal vengeance. And Jesus was saying that that was never what the law intended. In fact, how are you supposed to personally respond? And, and Jesus wanted to help them understand you, you missed it the first time around. You don't understand what righteousness is. Jesus never gave that law to give a loophole in, gr- 
grounds for personal vengeance. In fact, if they would have understood the law the first time, he made it very, very clear. God told them that vengeance didn't belong in the personal realm for them personally, but they disregarded those parts of the law. Realize that as Jesus is going through the Sermon on the Mount, he is not giving a new law. He is not he is not doing away with the old law and saying, it's useless, it's done, I have come to provide something totally other and different. He's saying he, he is agreeing with the law and he's properly interpreting it and properly applying it. If they had understood the law the first time, they would have known there was no room for personal vengeance. I have another verse for you and I think I got this one right. Leviticus 19. Leviticus chapter 19. And here's, here's what it says. Leviticus 19 verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Individually, personally, God already instructed them, vengeance does not belong to you in the personal realm. You don't get to go exact vengeance. It belongs to the Lord and to those that he delegates under his authority, both to the state, there are those within the church that at times have to step in and uh, deal with sin and evil, and yet God is saying it doesn't belong to you personally, not only for their brothers, the Israelites, but just a few verses later in verse Verse 33 and verse 34, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall not treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God gave the instruction already. Vengeance didn't belong to them personally. Yes, there were times that the courts had to step in and hand out a just punishment, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and these were meant to be restrictions to keep punishments fair, and Jesus was very, very consistent with that. And yet it had gotten to that point in Jesus' day where the scribes and the Pharisees were going back to that law, and they were using this as justification for their vengeful behavior. See, the law gives me, you hurt me, I hurt you. There were actually laws in Jesus' day that, that allowed for this type of uh, personal vengeance, personal payback. So Jesus illustrates the point. He says, do not resist evil. Uh, do not resist the one who is evil is the best translation. If you have the King James Bible or some translations, the verse that is given in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus says, but I too say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Some of the translations simply say, do not resist evil, as if somehow we are supposed to be pacifists and just allow all sorts of evil, but that's actually not the best translation. It's a better translation, do not resist the one who is evil, that we as individual Christians are not supposed to be vigilantes trying to bring righteousness and justice into all situations of injustice. There are spheres, there are lanes that God has prescribed authority both to the state and to others to execute and carry out his justice, but individual Christians realize it's not theirs to try to go out and combat every force of evil and to right all wrongs when we as Christians are sinned against. He's going to take that principle right there and he's going to illustrate it four ways. And the first one he illustrates, he says, if anyone, in verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So in the very first sense, he gives this illustration where someone is slapped on the right cheek and your first, your first reaction would be to fight back. You hurt me, I hurt you. And Jesus says, well, actually, people who understand who God is and follow him, well, they would turn the other cheek. Why? What is Jesus saying? It's very interesting that he indicates the right cheek. In, the, in, a, in a culture and society that would have been dominated by right-handed people, to be slapped on the right cheek, you perhaps have heard explained, this is an insult. For a right-handed person to be facing someone and slap them on the right cheek, it is a backhanded slap. This is not so much about physical pain as it is an insult to personal dignity. 
there were laws in place that when this type of thing happened, especially if it happened by someone of lower society to a greater class, that there was a punishment, even a financial fine, able to be levied against that person, that you could get what was yours, that you could seek payback and revenge. And Jesus says that people who really understand the gospel, people who really understand what it's like to be ruled by Christ, they have a personal righteousness such, such that if someone insults your personal dignity, if someone is extremely offensive and rude to you, well, we, we don't have this inner sense of fight, of needing to defend our own honor. We don't have to resist evil in that sense and, and see that it's our personal right to, to put them in their place. When someone wrongs you, and there's an affront to your personal dignity, do you, do you have that urge well up within you that you think it's your God-given right to put them in their place? Jesus is saying that doesn't belong to his followers. It's not their job to try to overcome evil in that instance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would be a man who certainly understood what it was like to endure personal injustice, to see evil up close and firsthand, and to experience what it was like to be treated evilly and sinned against. And here's what he had to say. The only way to overcome evil is to let it run itself to a standstill because it does not find the resistance it is looking for. Resistance merely creates further evil and adds fuel to the flames. But when evil meets no opposition, encounters no obstacles, but only patient endurance, its sting is drawn. And at last it meets an opponent which is more than its match. Of course, this can only happen when the last ounce of resistance is abandoned and the renunciation of revenge is complete. Then evil cannot find its mark. It can breed no further evil and is left barren. As Christ followers, God did not give it to you and I personally to, to right all wrongs when our personal dignity is insulted. This is what Paul wants his, his hearers to understand in the book of Romans. I've got Romans chapter 12 for you on the screen. And if you could look at Romans chapter 12 starting in verse 17, Romans 12, 17, I believe I have for you on the screen. And it says this, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's what we have to understand in all of this. I am not saying that when you are sinned against, that doesn't matter and it's insignificant and, and we shouldn't deal with it. In fact, sin matters deeply to God. What, what I'm saying is we have to keep in mind and remember whose job is it to deal with that injustice. It never belongs to us personally to, to, to do God's job for him. I'm not saying there's not times to defend ourselves. There certainly would be. Jesus is not trying to give blanket statements that exist in all times and all places and the laws that can never be violated. He's saying, look, here's the principle. Where's your gut reaction? Too often when we're sinned against, we respond in some sort of righteous anger thinking that our honor is what has to be defended and righted. And Jesus is saying, you see it in Paul's instructions to the Romans, whose job is it to repay evil? It's God's. If you've been sinned against, that wrong will be righted. He will mete out all punishment. You can rest assured that that will not go unnoticed. But don't take a job that belongs to the state or the church or to God himself and seek to mete out that vengeance and punishment on your own. It will never lead 
to the resolution that we hope for. There's this quote, even in a society obsessed with honor and shame, think about that. We live in a society that's obsessed by performance. Um, We understand guilt very well, but in the society Jesus was writing to, shame and honor was a much bigger driving force in the culture. We understand shame and honor, but not in the day that Jesus, not to the same extent of the people that Jesus, to be shamed, to have your honor disgraced, that was the worst kind of insult. Even in a society obsessed with honor and shame, a disciple must be so secure in his or her status before God that he or she can dispense with human honor. Such a person need not avenge lost honor because this person seeks God's honor rather than his or her own. If their lives are forfeit when they begin to follow Jesus, they have no honor of their own to lose. What a beautiful truth that for us as followers of Christ, we're concerned about his honor, his glory, not our own, And and therefore, when someone slaps us on the right cheeks and our personal dignity is insulted and our personal honor is questioned, we're very, very free. This is not a person who is weak. This is not a person who lays down and, and simply is unable to defend themselves. This is a person who's so strong and so secure in who the Lord is and in the Lord's ability to defend honor and righteousness and justice that they give the greater response to evil. They don't try to triumph evil with evil. They, they respond in a solid trust of God. So how, how about you? When a spouse insults your, when you feel you don't get the respect that you deserve from a, a spouse, when uh, in a work situation an employee makes your life miserable, are you tempted to, to make their life miserable? When a neighbor lets their trash blow into your yard, are you tempted to knock your own trash can off on the day that the wind is blowing the right direction to pay back? In these little situations, right, do we understand and realize that, that, that God's honor, his glory, someday he will mete out justice and we're not here to make our own name great, but to point others to the one who is great. May that be true of us. But it's not just true of our personal dignity, it's also true of our personal possessions. And this is why then he's, Jesus goes on and illustrates it with the next illustration. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Both the inner and outer garment. And Jesus is saying, look, if someone takes you into a court of law and your personal possessions are at stake, even to the point that you're left with nothing. And uh, uh, Again, Jesus is making this drastic overstatement to illustrate the point. Look, even if your possessions are left at nothing by those who want to do evil against you. Why, why, why does that matter? We as a people don't need to be about fighting for our own possessions or fighting for our own honor. We understand what it's like to love others. He makes this statement then as well where he says, uh, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. That, that's the other statements we can understand a little bit. This one is odd in our day. What, what specifically is probably being talked about as the land was occupied by Roman soldiers, they had the ability through legal force to acquisition anything they needed. This is why Simon was forced to carry Jesus' cross. A soldier was able to come to private citizens and demand a certain burden of them. Carry my burden for a thousand paces, for one mile would have been their measurement. And Jesus is saying, so they, they had no recourse. And they could go ahead and pace out the thousand paces and grumbling the whole way and wishing evil to come down on the Roman state. And, and there, was, there was no ability when their personal rights were infringed on, they couldn't do any otherwise. And Jesus is saying, look, go ahead and go the one mile that the law requires and then go the second mile. Your rights are not to be that defended to the point that you lose your Christian testimony and do disservice to the cause of Jesus Christ. 
we have to understand, balancing this with other places in Scripture, we realize that there is a time in, in the book of Acts, some of Christ's followers are going to say that we have to obey God rather than men. Jesus is not talking about some of those areas of, of civil disobedience where, where, uh, where the government would be requiring disobedience. He, he's saying people who love God, they, they have a different mind frame when it comes to this. They realize that their life is not their own to be protected, but they're, they're here to give God honor and glory even when their personal rights are infringed upon. Why, who, who are they to have the government tell them what to do and infringe upon their rights? And Jesus is saying, why, why does it matter? Go ahead and go the second mile. How countercultural would that have been in that day? The soldiers are used to being met with self-righteous grumblings and accusations and evil things spoke about them. And here comes someone that not only carries the burden for a mile, but with a smile on their face offers to go too. What doors do you think that would open for conversation to say, I've never seen someone react like this. I'm used to getting threats of lawsuits in my face when rights are infringed upon. I've never seen someone respond with the love of Christ in that sense. What, what a testimony that that would be for God's people. And then he also says this, but by way of last illustration in verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. That even with our finances, those things that we think are ours, Christians would even understand there's opportunity to give that away freely and generously. Now, we, we can't divorce this from the rest of the context of Scripture as well, where Proverbs would have much to say about lending. We would take it in that context. In a few chapters, Jesus is going to make a statement that we don't cast our pearls before swine. So there's certainly, this is not the statement that Christians have to give away everything to the point that they are penniless, but it's certainly, we as Christians, our default posture is not that we cling to everything as if it's ours. It's, we understand that even our possessions, our wealth, have come to us from God. It's His. We can be free to it when those who are when there are those who are genuinely in need certainly in Jesus day there would have been those who begging was the only option available there was no welfare system no no other means of of social support and it was either beg or die and Jesus is saying surely even with our possessions we can be free in that sense so what is Jesus saying as he goes through this illustration Jesus is, is helping people understand that even in their reactions, it's not just enough as a Jesus follower to not commit certain sins. It, it's actually such that when we as his followers are sinned against, we respond rightly. It's going to come, the way we respond in these situations, our heart is going to be on full display because in an instant we're enraged at the sin that has been committed against us. And our heart is going to be revealed. Who do we value? What do we value? What is important to us? And that's going to come out. You have this quote in your bulletin, and I think we have it for you on the screen by a man named Craig Keener, and it says this, Jesus produced hyperbole precisely to challenge his hearers, to force them to think about what they valued. Jesus' words in this case strike at the very core of human selfishness, summoning his disciples to value others above themselves in concrete and consistent ways. They have no honor, no honor or property worth defending compared with the opportunity to show how much they love God and everyone else. Here's the root principle for us as Christians. We have no honor, no property worth defending that comes higher than, than our calling to honor God and to show, every, to show our love for God and our love for others. And that will control even our reactions. So when we as Christians are sinned against, both inside and outside the church, when our response is sinful, 
it shows that the wrong things are ruling our hearts. It shows that we haven't yet understood what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to have his rule and his love control us. And, 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 and this is showing us again how, how impossibly high the standard is for righteousness. That's why the scribes wouldn't measure up. We have to be perfect even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Where is this kind of righteousness going to come from? How, how are we supposed to respond this way? And truly, Christ must be our example. He is the one who willingly gave up all rights. That's what Philippians 2 says. That he thought of himself of no reputation. He, he willingly, he's an example of considering others better than ourselves because he emptied himself and came, took on human flesh and came to this earth to die a cruel death. Peter writes about that in the book of 1 Peter. We have these verses for you on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Don't miss this. Justice is coming. And particularly for those who have a high sense of justice, it can be very, very difficult when, when you are violated, when you are sinned against, when there is some injustice. But just like Jesus entrusted God's plan, entrusted God to judge justly, so, so that helps us in the way that we respond, so that we would be willing to turn the other cheek, to give the cloak also, to go the second mile, that we would be a people who, who are ruled by that kind of emotion. So how, how about you? What are your reactions like? You, you can take inventory of it as you look at your relationships. When others sin against you, how are your relationships and reactions? Are you, are you the spouse who, when sinned against, responds sinfully and somehow tries to justify it because of the other spouse's sin? Are you the disgruntled employee who is never satisfied by the actions of co-workers or bosses and so you somehow seek to respond in ways that are negative and you justify your negative emotions and behavior thinking that it's all of their problem around you? Are you the church member who sees ex the experiences and faults of others and you can never extend grace? leading to reactions of bitterness and anger because somehow you... Is, the, the weird thing about this is, is that at times we can turn into vigilantes for justice, thinking that God needs us to be God in the lives of others, setting them right, and we often do that sinfully and angrily. And yet Jesus has come to say, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you for my name's sake. Let's understand that we live in a broken world and, and we're not foregoing justice. We're remembering whose realm it belongs in. It doesn't belong in our hands alone. Ultimately, it belongs in God's realm. He will bring justice someday. He's delegated some of that to state and authorities and sometimes sin in the church has to be dealt with through the church. But God doesn't need us personally to do his job for him. And Christians get that. Jesus' people understand that. And that's what Jesus wanted us to understand. Let's grow in this as a people. Let's ask God to work in our hearts. Father, help us, encourage us as we think about who you are, as we understand what it means to be your followers. We know that we will be sinned against. Father, help us to be the kinds of people who are so consumed with your honor and your glory 
that we don't feel the need to try to take your job from you, that we realize that vengeance is yours, and rather than repay evil with evil, we seek to overcome evil with good. Help us in that, Father. This does not come naturally. We, we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ to change hearts. It's only through what he has provided, the grace that he has provided on the cross, that our sins can be forgiven, that our hearts can be made new, that our lives can be made right. Help us in this. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.